outside trying to holler at me. We sound so good. No, we don't. Not really, but it's fine anyway. <laughs> Why did you stop us? We were on a roll. Hot cha cha. Hot cha Did it? Did it? You had the little like headphone smurf thing where you like have the hair. Alfalfa. Over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, I just, man. I couldn't. Cool. Who wants to do the intro? I'll do it. Yay. Yes. Hey guys, it's Rachel Redfield. I'm here with, do you guys want to just say your name? Ben and Jones. Dickton. And, and Ryan Dickton. Ryan's still here. Yeah. I know it's been a full week. Ryan has sat here all week long, quietly editing. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan You're welcome. You're we give best. him food sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Please help. <laughs> Every time he cuts out an um. <laughs> he gets lots of food then. <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for being here and helping us with the podcast. You're truly an, an inspiration to all of us and a deep help without whom this podcast would not be possible. You're, you know, gladly welcome. Thanks, bro. So, and thank you guys who are all out there in the abyss for also listening. This is a med ed podcast where it's a group of third year residents doing a casual case They're not in the world. They're in the abyss. <laughs> Case-based journal club where you're just coming to hang with us. Uh, here's a disclaimer. This is for medical education only and should not be considered medical advice. Our thoughts and opinions are our own and not reflective of our program or employers. Please, please, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever thing you use. Leave a rating, a comment, a nice comment, a mean comment. We love feedback. Yes. And thank you, Rachel. And Sean, take it away. Uh, I would like to take it away. Give it back. And then give it back. Here you go, Ben. Thank you. I'm handing it to Ben. I'm giving it back to Sean. And I'm accepting it. Thank you, Ben. Okay, we're going to talk about a case. You're taking care of a 76-year-old man. He has a history of type 2 diabetes. Oh, boy. Hypertension, chronic kidney disease, stage 3, bilateral knee replacements. And he came into the hospital two days ago with lethargy, cough, and productive sputum for two days. What's his blood glucose? I hold your horses. No one cares. His daughter brought him in. uh, How dare you? (laughs) How dare you? Man, I knew we were going to deviate, but not this early and not this hard. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll contain myself. It's okay. I love it. This is gold. Uh, His daughter brought him. The patient's daughter brought him to the hospital because he was not acting like himself. His vitals uh, at that time were significant for a fever to 39 degrees Celsius. uh, Heart rate of 105 and a blood pressure of 82 over 45. Whoa. Yeah, this bad. Uh, he's nonverbal, but he can track for less than 10 seconds. Uh, he w- is reportedly normal at his baseline and relatively independent in his daily activities of living per his daughter. Uh, he responds immediately to physical stimuli. Uh, he can intermittently follow some simple commands, uh, and you do not sense a strength deficit or loss of tone on your neurologic exam. You can auscultate rails on the right chest wall. His CBC comes back and has a white count of 16, and then you get a chest x-ray that shows a right middle lobe consolidation. Despite adequate fluid resuscitation, he remains hypotensive. So uh, a central line is placed, and he gets started on norepinephrine. Uh, they give him broad-spectrum antibiotics for presumed septic shock, which is likely related to a community-acquired pneumonia. Y'all good? Do I need to uh, pause on my case real quick? So summary, 76-year-old guy admitted to the ICU for septic shock, likely source pneumonia. Bingo. And we don't even know his glucose. And you don't even know his And he has altered mental status. His glucose, Ben, is normal. 
Even though sepsis what? is a cause Amazing. of non-insulin-mediated hypoglycemia. I would wonder why his glucose is normal. Oh my gosh, Ben. <laughs> Do um, I have a one-track mind? Maybe. No, you're a fantastic clinician, and I'm going to continue. So over the course <laughs> of the next two days, his white count normalizes, his vitals normalize, uh, he remains in the ICU on a small amount of the vasopressor that was started, and then on your overnight shift, uh, the patient becomes agitated. It is 2 a.m., uh, and uh, he is yelling out Susan over and over again. Uh, the nurses have been continually redirecting him. He's gotten his PRN five milligrams of melatonin, which had no effect. Uh, and the nurse comes to you and they're concerned. Uh, they think that he's so agitated that he's going to be, his agitation might be getting worse uh, and he's going to be disruptive. They're worried that he might remove either tubes or catheters. They're asking if you want to order something or do something to help get him to sleep. What do you guys think? My mom's name is Susan. <laughs> I would have picked something different. I'm so sorry. <laughs> or maybe your mom would be the one to go to the ICU and take care of this gentleman. Mm, yes, she's that a, I made up. She's a gem and a nurse. <laughs> oh, so I knew that. Yes. So Susan, I will say Susan. that this scenario happens to me way more times than I can count. I mean, when I'm on night float and I have eight phones in my hands, like with over 80 patients plus, the amount of calls I get for patients who are agitated and either the team, like our own physicians ask for, you know, they can, they say like, if this patient gets agitated, give <gasps> Haldol, Seroquel, any of the antipsychotics that happens all the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, so totally. I agree. So I'm using that as a segue to discuss uh, the trial Haloperidol and Zaprazidone for the treatment of delirium and critical illness, also called the mind USA trial. None of those letters have anything to do with the name of the trial. That's not important. We're glossing that, over it. This the, is <laughs> this is a, a dare they? study. Uh, the sponsoring institution was Vanderbilt University Medical Center. It came out in December of 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, funding came from the NIH and the VA Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center. Hmm. And really the problem that we're trying to tackle here, as you, guys, as you were saying before, Rachel, is delirium. So what is, what is delirium to you guys? Yelling Susan over and over again. <laughs> Profound inattention. Waxing and waning. Yes, I love that. Of mental status. I feel like that's what I was told when I was a medical student. Yeah, definitely. Like that waxing and waning mental status. Well, if you go to the DSM-5, it basically mentions that. It says periods of attention of inattention and lack of awareness. It has short onset. It waxes and wanes. Uh, and then I think the most interesting thing that I remember from my rotations in, in the ICU and other things so that it comes in two flavors. It comes in the flavor that we typically think of, which is hyperactive delirium, mm -hmm. where a patient is quote unquote agitated, removing lines, throwing hook shots, trying to remove essential paraphernalia from the room or the bed or themselves. Uh, and then it comes in the much more common and much more sneaky comes in the much more uh, subtly dangerous flavor of hypoactive delirium where patients are just quiet and inattentive and not really able to bring attention to themselves and let people know that they actually need, might need, re, uh, might need interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Delirium as a problem itself is especially bad in the ICU. Uh, it ha is linked to worsening mortality, higher risks of uh, long-term cognitive impairment. And then just during that hospitalization, it leads to, Longer, worse length of stay, uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation, etc. <clears throat> so what can we do about it? There have been a number of trials 
to see whether or not we can either prophylax patients for it, so give patients out the gate some sort of antipsychotic to see if they don't get delirious. Hmm. Uh, data has been mixed. It's been somewhat positive in some surgical patient populations, but no real benefit has been borne out in any of the... You look like you have a question, I, Ben. I just... I'm thinking about it as like, oh, you look like you could get pneumonia. Let me just give you some Zosin. <laughs> Not, oh, I'm sorry. Pepercell and Tazobactam. No, it like doesn't look great. You know, uh, I just let me, I can say that again. So I love the point you're Zosin. making. It's so good. Well, right. The idea that we're just going to dose someone with um, a, a antibiotic of choice, let's say Pepercell and Tazobactam is just really dangerous because it, you're, yes, you're looking ahead and that's fine to try to prevent uh, a bad outcome but i mean would it really work is sort of like why why do you think it would work it just seems a little um strange yeah yeah it's tough yeah. there haven't been any true convincing positive randomized control trials to say that either an atypical antipsychotic or a typical antipsychotic like haloperidol um would have a significant benefit just on days free from delirium let alone bigger outcomes like mortality length of stay mm. etc haldol for you haldol for you haldol <laughs> for me it seems just nice get to just get your injection coming into the emergency department coming in you hot. could get delirious so boop here you go <laughs> i so i remember from medical school also being told on how to assess someone's uh to assess someone's mental status actually i'll take that back i remember back from the ambulance corps being asked how to assess someone's mental status and I remember asking questions like, what is your name? Where are you? Where are we? Where are you from? What year is it? Et cetera. Do you guys, have you guys, do we, you guys still do that? I still do that. Yeah. I've, I try and trick patients, which is, you know, ethical in so many ways, but <laughs> I usually say like, who's the president? Who's the last president? Cause Ooh. that really gets them or like, what season is it? what temperature is it cold outside? You know, like just trying to mix it up. Yeah. Mix it up a little bit. I don't know if it's for my own entertainment yeah. or what, but patients are like, do you need help? <laughs> this well, girl doesn't know her weather or her seasons. <laughs> she asked me a lot. Girl, of weird... It's fall. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What is wrong with this girl waking me up at five 30 in the morning asking me what season it is. <laughs> That is hilarious and not a validated ICU tool for assessing delirium. <laughs> and also, I'm probably causing delirium. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> this girl told me it was the fall, but it's really winter. <laughs> yeah. She said it's cold outside, but I'm warm. <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> oh my God. Um, do you guys, are you guys familiar with any of the validated tools for assessing delirium? Yeah, I, I've used the CAM ICU one. CAM ICU. I, I like it. Uh, it's very much like yes, no, yes, no. Okay, any of these two? Okay, we're done. Uh, yeah, okay. I love that. It's nice and quick. Just to, for a little more background. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. I it, I love... No, that's a perfect summary. It is binary. It's either yes, this patient has delirium or no, this patient does not have delirium. It includes within it a whole other scale, the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale, which basically is just trying to make sure this patient is not, quote unquote, in a coma. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say quote are you quote unquote in a coma i hate this like, <laughs> it's weird the patient that's wouldn't like say yes or no to me in the hyperion calling trial. the five are you in a coma <laughs> hello sir i am psychiatrist so-and-so i'm here to check and see if you are alive raise your hand if you are in a coma 
<laughs> oh, I guess they're a five. Oh, Sorry, gotta go back to Hyperion. Spirits are high. Can't wait to cut this out. It's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. So the cam ICU is a terrific trial. It depends on. It's not a trial. Oh, Christ Almighty! <laughs> it's not a trial. Cam ICU is a. It's is not a trial. God. <laughs> <laughs> throw, what, what can you throw? Cam ICU is the confusion assessment method method for the ICU. Uh, it is a, a validated tool for assessing patients who have delirium. The first step is basically using the another score, the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. Uh, and basically, I won't go into that one too much. But if you are at a right level on that Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. Um, then we proceed with this test and it's basically making sure that patients can correctly, uh, identify different letters as you, uh, say a long word. Uh, so for example, the one that I always used was when I say the letter a squeeze my hand and then I say the phrase, save a heart. I don't know if you guys, uh, yeah, what? yeah, yeah, save a heart. you yep. haven't heard that. No, wait, say that you, I, I'm confused. I'll S a squeeze, squeeze. V E A, a squeeze. squeeze. Yeah. Oh, you spell out yeah. save a heart. Sorry, I should have said spell you know, just out say save, save a heart. Yeah, I was like, where in there? Squeeze, squeeze. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what? I would be confused. I would fail. I'd be getting Haldol left and right. Haldol. Uh, no, sorry. So when I spell out a phrase like save a heart, uh, you're supposed to squeeze just when I say the letter. Uh, you don't need to repeat it. I'm leaving it all in. No. <laughs> Um, <laughs> save a heart what we no. don't have enough time for this um, I'll never forget when I was in the ICU and I had two patients back to back and one patient looked um, uh, very inattentive and unaware and sort of you know was lying supine and looked very ill and I did a cam ICU and they nailed it like perfectly squeeze it just on the A's. And I was shocked. I remember having been taught this like a couple days earlier by one of our attendings. And I was like, Oh my God, this person is ill, but totally not delirious. And I went into another room of just picture your grandma, like picture your grandma baking you cookies, like sitting in her hospital bed, like eating her food. And I did the cam ICU and she just stared at me the whole time. And I was like, Oh my God, I had everything backwards and I'm sure she could tell me her full name. And it was a very enlightening experience. And I actually do the cam ICU now because of that, like one morning, it was very reinforcing. Does it take into account dementia? So the point of this is that if you have a baseline severe cognitive, uh, uh, impairment you this is not applicable to you okay this is just so a you tool have to know their delirium. baseline so right. you'd have to ask a family member like do you think that they could squeeze your hands on the a's of safe heart that would be something that you'd probably need to know going into the test okay okay and fun fact so for the trial probability has to be hi <laughs> going into our trial that's uh what a great segue because Thank that's you. something that we're all circle back to so the mind usa trial um we're uh, going to be using the cam ICU in this trial. Is why I brought it up. This is a double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase three conducted trial at 16 U.S. medical centers. Mind USA. Well, do one of you guys want to talk about blinding real quick? This is a double-blinded trial. Single blind. So when you're unblinded, everybody knows what's going on. When you're single-blinded, the patient or participant doesn't know what treatment they receive. Which is important because I think if I know what intervention I'm getting, I kind of might behave differently. Like if I'm getting placebo, I might be kind of mad. 
Yeah. I'd be like, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean this is a placebo? I might exit the trial or be lost to follow up. (laughs) Or I'd just mess with them. (laughs) Uh, I feel terrible. (laughs) Double blinded would mean that me as the prescriber or clinician would not know what you're getting and you would not know what you're getting as the patient, which is good because I think it might affect my behavior as a clinician enrolling patients if I know which group you're going to be going into or I have a suspicion of which treatment you're going to be receiving. Totally. And then the elusive triple blind. Triple blinded. Everyone's blind. No one knows. The patient, the data provider, collectors. the data collectors, the analysts, or the other members of the of committee don't know who is receiving what treatment until the very end. It's very interesting. I don't awesome. see a lot of triple blind. I think the important part is that the patients uh, or participants receiving the intervention and those giving the intervention don't know who is receiving what. Agreed. So for this trial, the Mind USA trial, uh, they screened more than uh, 20,000 patients. They were looking for people older than 18 in an ICU receiving either invasive or non-invasive positive pressure, vasopressors, or an intra-aortic balloon pump. Uh, after exclusions uh, and the informed consent that they did not, not get or patients in that group that did not actually end up developing delirium, they were left with 566 patients who were enrolled in the study. Uh, among those patients who were excluded, an important one that Rachel alluded to was having a, any severe baseline cognitive deficit because that would make it basically impossible to assess for delirium. Uh, if people were at a high risk for having uh, effects of the antipsychotics that they were going to give, so someone who has a prolonged QT or had previous polymorphic VT, ventricular tachycardia, or neuroleptic malignant syndrome, they didn't include them. Uh, they also excluded patients who were too well or too sick, so rapidly resolving organ dysfunction, or patients who are in a quote-unquote moribund state. Uh, patients who are incarcerated were not included, and anyone who could not receive the CAM ICU, so patients who are blind, deaf, or did not speak English were excluded. It sort of warps the sample size in a way if you think about it, but you know it seems at least practical or important for the study design. Let's not give a drug that could potentially kill you. <laughs> Well, you that, know, that, I mean, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, so the sample was about 56% men, 83% white, and had a median age of 60 years old. At the outset, 89% of patients had hypoactive delirium, and 11% of patients had the more agitated hyperactive delirium. Uh, otherwise, there were no difference in any baseline characteristics, and this included things like whether they were there for sepsis, respiratory failure, what, what one's Apache 2 score was. So... Among all of our groups, they were even. Speaking of which, uh, researchers came into the ICU, performed uh, the CAM ICU on patients twice daily, and then based on this, they were randomized into one of three groups. They received either placebo, ziprazidone, an atypical antipsychotic, or haloperidol, a typical antipsychotic. And remember, this is only when patients who have already developed delirium. So this is, as opposed to prophylaxis, a treatment, quote-unquote, for delirium. The article talks about uh, the blinding and the methods section and saying how all these drugs were in identical colorless bags, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, And then they talk about how they actually administered the drug, which was very clever. So uh, if you were in a specific group, so if you were in the haloperidol group, you got 2.5 milligrams of haloperidol, and then they checked your CAM ICU at the next 12-hour interval. So they checked it twice a day. If you were still delirious, they increase the dose. If you were not delirious, they decrease the dose, and so on and so forth. So you could get incrementally higher or lower doses based on how severe your delirium was. 
Patients older than 70 started at a lower dose, which was interesting, and then they had max doses for both these things, obviously. Uh, all drugs were stopped on day 14, because uh, this, this was just looking at 14 days uh, total, uh, or they were stopped at ICU discharge. Can I ask a question? Yes, please. For the people who got better and they lowered the dose, if they continued to get better, would they continue lowering the dose or you just kind of stayed on 1.25 milligrams of haloperidol? No, no. So if your delirium resolved, they would stop giving you the treatment drug and that could be placebo, zeprazidone, or haloperidol. Okay. So they didn't continue it for the 14 days. Yep. You just, okay. They basically enrolled you in the study uh, and once you had delirium, they initiated the drug and they up titrated or down titrated based on when your delirium was. So okay. I'll get, it might get a little more clear when I talk more about the stats. The trial mentioned that uh, all clinicians were educated about the ABCDE bundle, which uh, has been researched in the critical care literature. And I wasn't actually familiar with from that name. Are you guys familiar with that? No. No. It's basically a an amalgamation of all of the things that we already sort of do in the ICU with spontaneous awakening and breathing trials, coordin care coordination, so having the nurse on rounds, delirium monitoring and management, so doing the CAM ICU, uh, and then early mobility, so having our terrific physical therapists and occupational therapists in the ICU doing early mobility, all that good stuff. So there was some formal education, and then across all the groups, they had greater than 88% uh, adherence to this sort of protocol. Uh, which was pretty impressive. Uh, the endpoints in this trial were days alive free from delirium or coma over the 14-day interval. And they had a bunch of very interesting secondary endpoints, I think the most important of which is 30 and 90-day survival. Uh, things like free being free from, the, from mechanical ventilation, time to discharge also included in there. And then lastly, a whole bunch of safety endpoints. Uh, I think this is also important since we're sort of introducing a, a drug to patients who are critically ill. Um, but the incidence of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia or torsades de points, uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, uh, and there was even a measure, like a formal measure for uh, extrapyramidal symptoms. Hmm. Cool. All right. What do you guys think? Okay, I got a little lost for a second. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm talking real fast. No, no, no. You're doing a great job. I just want to summarize. I would love that. Okay. So they had a bunch of patients that were diagnosed with delirium. They had people check on the patients in the morning and at night, or at least two time points during the day, yep. did a CAM score. Based on their CAM score, if they were getting worse, they would increase the dose of haloperidol or zeprazidone or placebo. And if they were starting to get better, if their CAM score was getting lower, is that the right... Oh, well, CAM score, CAM ICU is binary. So it's either delirious or not delirious. Oh, yes. Sorry. Okay. Thank you for that. So I think I may have mentioned that incorrectly as well. But if they were st had persistent delirium is the takeaway. So it's either yes or no. Okay. No, you have you've said that correctly. So if they, they continue to have delirium, they would go up on the dose. If they did not have delirium, they would go down on the dose. Exactly. And, and, it, and could eventually stop it. Could so eventually even if stop you were it. in one of these trial groups. And then did it for 14 days. So in theory, if you had a medication that worked wonders and got rid of your delirium, you would have 10 survival-free days without delirium. Right. If you only had four days of delirium. Yep. And okay. yeah, so you know, the if I am running this trial, I would love to see... 12 days free from delirium in my Ziprazidone group and 10 days free from delirium in my haloperidol group and, I don't know, 7 days free from delirium in my uh, 
placebo group. And this was, I'll talk about this in a sec, but this was powered to detect a two-day difference. Oh. It's sufficient patience for that. Um, so, you know, comparing Zeprazidone in our theoretical example, this is not real, of having 12 days versus placebo of having seven days, you know, that would we would be able to detect a significant difference. Okay. And I cannot emphasize this enough. We say a lot of numbers on this podcast, but that was just an example. Okay. Banish them from your mind. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. I particularly like the safety endpoints here. We'll come back to this. Um, so this was an intention to treat analysis. So if you were uh, randomized to a particular group, that is a group that you were analyzed as a part of. It had power of 80% uh, to detect a two-day difference between days alive without delirium. Uh, and they did a very interesting bone Ferroni adjustment since they were comparing two pairwise comparisons. So that's the multiplicity. It is not exactly multiplicity. Okay. It is kind of like multiplicity, but basically they made the significance level more stringent. Uh, so they analyzed at a, a level of uh, P equals uh, 0.025 because they were doing two pairwise comparisons. So 0.05 divided by two. The, of note, they do not adjolt. adjolt. Wait, 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 wait. Is that is it 0.025? Yes. Oh, sorry. I thought you said 0.25. Which is a 25%. Or a, not a 25. It's 2.5%. 2.5%. It's... So it's, it's it is like, it is multiplicity correction is it, it's a correction for multiple comparisons. It is uh, within the test, yes. But they do not adjust for multiple comparisons between secondary endpoints, which is another consideration in multiplicity. Okay. I see. Got it. Okay. So um, most patients ended up being exposed to trial drug or placebo for a median of four days out of a total possible fourteen. Uh, the mean daily dose of haloperidol was 11 milligrams, and the mean daily dose of ziprazidone was 20 milligrams, uh, each with a pretty wide standard deviation, uh, so some varying doses of antipsychotic. Uh, half of the patients had uh, trial drug or placebo temporarily withheld at least once, and th- again, there was no difference between groups on this. Wait, why were they held? Uh, so if you didn't have delirium anymore, it'd be <laughs> oh, held, oh, okay. or if you had an adverse uh, event, that would be uh, stopped. Okay. Okay. The adjusted mean number of days without delirium or coma was 8.5 days in the placebo group, 7.9 days in the haloperidol group, and 8.7 days in the zeprazidone group. So 8.5 in placebo, 7.9 in haldol, 8.7 in zeprazidone. So before you even tell me anything more, I can already tell it's not going to be significant. It is, the p-value was 0.26. So a 26% chance that this is due to random chance, which does not meet our stringent p-value, our stringent significance level of uh, 0.025. So this was considered statistically not significant. Bummer. I know. Just when you think there's pharmacologic interventions you can do to treat delirium. Uh, They looked at all the secondary endpoints and spoilers. uh, All the confidence intervals included uh, across uh, one. uh, Suggesting that there's no significant difference in any of these. Remember, these included things like days free from mechanical ventilation or 30 and 90 day survival. No difference. What about safety, you ask? What about safety, Sean? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Tell honestly, I am curious about safety because those doses are, are pretty big doses. How how paradol eleven milligrams per day? Yeah. I mean, I usually, if I'm like really concerned about a patient, I'll get them five, but twice a day. I know. I feel like I am. I've been a wimp when I have mm-hmm. to give my antipsychotics. I've been like one, two milligrams. That's it. I go for five. I've been balked at. I've been balked at before, but being like, no, 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 five. I'm like, uh, okay, you're right, five. <laughs> but still, five twice a day. I know. For I know. Several, for how many days? Uh, eight days potentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, 
a, a median days on a trial drug was four. Okay, okay. Yeah. You know, but again, pretty wide, uh, wide interquartile range on that. What about safety? So uh, no difference in excessive sedation, which was a concern. Uh, no significant reduction in other opioids or sedatives used, which would be a, an interesting outcome to know. Uh, QTC was more prolonged in the zeprazidone group, which I found interesting. Uh, but only two patients had polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And, ready for this, they were both in the haloperidol group, which did not have as long a QTC as the zeprazidone group, and neither of which had received haloperidol in the preceding four days. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, that, that's interesting. So I know. They, so they just happened to get... I mean, probably related to a, a number of other things, like an increased risk of a cardiac arrhythmia or electrolyte abnormalities, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, no one had neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and then three patients, including one in the placebo group, had the drug withheld for suspected extrapyramidal uh, symptoms, uh, and then one person in the haloperidol group had the drug withheld for dystonia. Hmm. I love that the one... Was in the placebo. Group. I know, I know. Suspected extra Stop the placebo. Uh, okay, yeah. So those are some interesting findings. Uh, limitations to the study. Any limitations that you guys that have come to mind while we've been talking about this? One thing I was thinking about is that normally when a nurse or a team or you know someone on the team asks for a medication to help with delirium usually and I think you mentioned this before they are a very active delirium yeah I don't usually give them to patients that are uh, hypoactive because I'm nervous that I'm going to really like Zonk knock them out. them out yeah that's totally true that's a really good point and majority of these patients that you said at the beginning were it was like 80% hypoactive yeah this so, study had 89% hypoactive. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I don't know what, honestly, the clinical ref or the clinical relevance to my everyday practices. I mean, if there would have been some benefit, then I'd be like, oh, that's so interesting. Like now maybe I'll think about using it. But if the majority of patients they use this medication on are not the patients I would typically use it on and it didn't work. Not a big surprise. Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. What's the draw? Is that your question? Yeah, or like, why did they pick patients that were hypoactive? Why wouldn't they just do hyperactive patients? I think they enrolled all patients with delirium, whether that was hyper True. or hypoactive. And this is honestly probably pretty reflective of patients in the ICU who have delirium. There True. is a huge percentage of patients that we don't even recognize. But if you were to do a CAM ICU, probably 80 plus percent of patients are going to have hypoactive delirium. But you're right. The one that we see more are the, is the one that gets more attention. Attention, yeah. I feel like an uncle of mine at some point said, like, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and that's exactly what mm-hmm. we're thinking of. This is also a type of bias, availability bias, which I think we mentioned on a previous episode. So it's the tendency to think that uh, things that come readily to mind are more common or actually representative than is truly the case. Totally. I mean, you don't necessarily go walking around uh, looking at people who are sleeping and running the cam ICU on them. Haldol. Time for Haldol. Oh, look, it's time for Haldol. You're sleeping. And people would look at you like, what are you doing? Don't give that person Haldol. They're not trying to pull anything out of their body. This is Rachel's point earlier. Like, it it really does make sense. It's like, you know, we wouldn't, we, we're worried about zonking them more. Yeah. So, Hmm. 
I should do more cams. Now I want to do more cams. Yeah. Get after it. I think that that's what I'm taking away from this trial is I want to do more cams. I don't yeah. know what I'm going to do about it, but <laughs> I'm going to diagnose it. Uh, okay. Another thing that was brought up uh, in the discussion of this is that it, you know, it just tested two antipsychotics, one typical and one atypical, and that does not necessarily mean that there are not other antipsychotics out there that may have some sort of benefit. Um, and I know personally the one that I use a lot is quetiapine, and that's mm-hmm. also used at so mostly, or I think it's only oral, and so that's a bit tough. Is that Seroquel? That is Seroquel. Okay. Uh, strengths of the study is that it was pretty big. It was powered appropriately to detect the thing that it was seeking to detect, and it was pretty generalizable in terms of including a lot of different patients that come to the ICU for different reasons. Do you think this is going to change your practice, Ben? Well, I'm not going to go running around injecting grandma with Haldol. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it will give me pause and I've actually been trying to do this lately of just being more conscious when I walk into the room about are the lights on if it's daytime are the windows up you know a lot of nurses and facilities do a really good job of this and I really take that for granted but there are situations where I will get called and asked repeatedly to give a medication that is going to make the patient a little bit more tired. And I now will keep this in mind that it may not actually help, you yeah. know, and, and that doesn't make anyone feel good at the moment. Like, well, and the mind you wish any trial, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's, it will definitely give me more pause. Yeah. How many times have people gone up to you and been like, thank you so much for quoting that trial to me. (laughs) I know. Um, Quoting a negative trial and doing (laughs) nothing. Right. And doing nothing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, as you can see, no, yeah, that's a, that's also a really good point. Ben just pushed up his fake glasses (laughs) for those who couldn't see, which is everyone. (laughs) Not a visual medium. I could see. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think this is going to make me a lot less quick to pull the trigger on giving any antipsychotics unless there is a good reason. Um, the accompanying editorial by Dr. Thomas Bleck, I think is awesome. Uh, I'm going to do some loose quotes from this, but, uh, uh, he says it would be interesting to know whether hyper hyperactive patients were less likely to injure themselves when given an active drug as a rescue agent. Uh, I would still consider using dopamine antagonists in patients at imminent risk of injurious behaviors. Any example, unplanned endotracheal extubation, which would give me angina. Uh, but I would have less confidence in their benefits than I had in the past, which I think sums it up. You know, if someone's at a risk of hurting themselves or others, sometimes you have no choice but to try to do give some give a pharmacologic agent. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's tough for me to justify this if it's not even going to do the fundamental thing it's meant to do which is reduce delirium yeah that's tough is is there anything besides the cam icu score that is not binary that you can test delirium because i would be totally curious if some of these patients did improve like let's say they they were still delirious but they didn't pull at their iv anymore or like just the subtle improvements i I guess you could say oh maybe it's now because they're sedated so maybe that would be a little bit of a harder of a study to do, but definitely something I would be interested. That is a good point there. I am reading a review article from January of 2014 entitled sedation and delirium in the intensive care unit. And they also reference a, the ICDSC intensive care delirium screening check. And this looks like it is a, 
yeah, this is a numerical scale. A score of greater than four is positive for delirium with scores of one to three termed subsyndromal delirium. So yeah, that would be a more quantitative way of assessing it. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. Like if you could actually not just say delirium or no delirium, but say how severe it is. Cause maybe then if you stratify, stratify those hyperactive or stratify those high risk or severe delirium, maybe there is a benefit there that we're not seeing. Yeah. And, and then it may be harder with hypoactive patients yeah. to detect that slight benefit because they're not the ones, they're the ones that are not pulling at their IVs and yeah. causing a scene. Exactly. So what does that mean for our patient? So I gotta uh, go back. What? Sorry. What was our patient again? Oh yeah. Don't tell me. 87 year old, something older, older man coming in septic shock with delirium. Yelling your mom's name. Yes. Yelling Susan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Do yep. I give her antipsychotics or not? Him. Him. Yes. No. No. Ben. No. Yeah. I. Well, unless he's hurting himself. That's a good, yeah, someone else. that's a good point. So you ask the nurse if he is a danger to himself or others. And the nurse says, no, he's just yelling out Susan. Um, <laughs> so you decide not to, <laughs> I love her too. <laughs> so you decide not to administer any antipsychotics based just on that. You keep a close eye on the patient. You enact all those aspects of the ABCDE that I mentioned earlier. So you continue with regular morning, spontaneous awakening trials and breathing trials of appropriate. You continue to talk with the nurses about things that might be affecting the delirium. Uh, you continue to reorient the patient. You make sure that all their sensory deficits are, are fixed. So if they have glasses, they get glasses. Uh, you maintain a normal sleep-wake cycle as best you can, minimize disturbances, and you know early mobility as soon as you can. And a uh, patient improves over the next two days, and the ICU is able to be uh, sent to the floors and then discharged to a subacute rehab. Thanks. That was interesting. Thank you, Sean. Good. I'm here to interest everyone. I like the the psych ICU yeah, combination. Right. You know, we've done a little bit of psych, a little bit of ICU, throwing it together. Trying to mix it up. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, special shout outs to Ryan Dickdan, who's still here. Hello. Ryan, thank you so much. Yeah, and check out my Instagram biochem tats. Good luck spelling it. Tell me, wait, tell me more. Oh, it's just pictures from my lab work. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. And I just uh, took a picture of a droplet generator. A Go over there to check it a out. A droplet generator? <laughs> yeah. Isn't I that, isn't I that can't just wait. a. <laughs> <laughs> that's just an eyedropper. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it generates droplets. Very expensive eyedropper. Oh, boy. <laughs> Spoilers. Okay. And a special shout out to Aaron Miller, who does all of our art. Follow him at Useless Med School Notes. He's great. And as always, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice and leave a comment leave a rating we love you guys thank you Woo. it's lit yeah party i like how you said spontaneous awakening trials as if like when people wake up, it's not spontaneous. In <laughs> That's general. what they're called. <laughs> like, I've awoken. It was spontaneous today. <laughs> he means from sedation. Oh, yeah. Not okay, just sorry. like, I poked them and they awoke. <laughs> like when my alarm goes off, is that a non-spontaneous yes, awakening non trial? Non-spontaneous awakening trial. Versus when I am like in a majestic bed, I'm just like, oh, oh I've spontaneously you awoken. Could you imagine if we threw alarms in patients' rooms? Yeah, it's me trial. knocking at 5.30 yeah, in the morning. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to install Med anything. Students.